0: And welcome to Kelly Dry's Law Access Podcast. I'm Donnelly McDowell. And today we're going to cover social media advertising and tell you basically everything you need to know if you or your company want to advertise on social media. All right, that might be an oversell. Maybe not everything you need to know. That would take a long time, but we're gonna highlight at least a few important high-level considerations. So we know people are on their phones now more than ever. Making advertising and other engagement on social media also more important than ever. If you and your company is not already advertising on social media, I'd be surprised. Um, More likely, you're looking at expanding your company's presence and engaging with customers in new ways. So we'll cover a few different issues today. First, advertising directly on behalf of your brand. Second, the use of influencer campaigns. And third, engaging on social media when others post about You, your products, your brand. So diving right into the first topic, advertising directly on behalf of your brand. And maybe this is through your company's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. You know, there's lots of different social media accounts, whatever your company uses. At a high level, you can't make claims through social media or endorsements or testimonials that you can't make through another advertising medium. So the same general rules of the road apply for making claims on your company's social media page that would apply um, if it's your website or your uh, company's website or a third party site. So there's two overarching considerations there. First, is the claim itself substantiated or supported? Um, So here we mean if it's an advertisement or testimonial, for example, do you have support to show that the depicted results are representative of what other consumers can typically expect to achieve? And we call this substantiation in the ad law world. Now that doesn't mean that you can't ever disclose or reference atypical results. Um, So let me give an example here um, involving a weight loss product. Say you sell a weight loss product and you have support for weight loss generally. This doesn't mean that you can only ever reference results that are explicitly within the generally expected results. Um, So say most consumers, lose three pounds a week when combined, um, most weight loss products have more information than as a best practice, you would include more information about how you're using the product. So a lot of them are typically along the lines of when used to replace a meal in conjunction with a healthy active lifestyle or something along those lines. Um, so anyway, say you have support for roughly three pounds, weight loss, three pounds of weight loss a week. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't advertise anything beyond that. It just means that you have to include a generally expected results disclosure when you do. So you might be able to reference someone who lost more than that, but you'd have to disclose um, clearly and conspicuously so a reasonable consumer would see it that the typical consumer actually loses less. So, okay, so that weight loss example is an example of a context where you could reference atypical results, as long as you disclose generally expected results. Conversely, if you don't have support for a benefit generally, then you can't just disclose around it by saying, well, that's not actually typical. So let's leave the weight loss world and maybe talk about the skincare product. If you have a consumer who wants to post a review or you wanna post their review on your website or social media page, This product reduced my skin lines by 50% over the past two weeks, just making up this claim in a fictional product. You can't say that if there's no support for reducing wrinkles or reducing lines and generally for the product, you can't disclose around the result that you don't have support for generally. Um, Contrast that with the weight loss example where you did have support for weight loss um, and you're describing an atypical result, but you're just, telling the consumer what is more generally expected as far as what they can expect. Now, another important related concept that we could could easily do a whole podcast on is the fact that certain results are going to be so atypical that you you shouldn't reference them. Um, That comes up uh, in weight loss and could come up if you're a direct selling company in terms of the business opportunity and how much money people typically make. That is a really fact-intensive inquiry um, and something we work with on companies regularly. But the takeaway here for the first consideration, you have to have support for the results that you advertise generally um, and include a generally expected results disclosure if the particular result is atypical. The second high-level consideration for social media is, is is there any material connection? And if so, is it adequately disclosed? So here, we're gonna get into this with influencers, but if you've incentivized someone to say something about your product, if you've given them a free product um, and said, here, write about what you think, try it out, um, here's a free product, then that needs to be disclosed. Uh, There's an example from the FTC's endorsement guides that have been been around for a long time that I always like to use, has a tweet from this fictional person, Julie Stars, and she has a claim shooting movie beach scene, uh, had to lose 30 pounds in six weeks. Thanks, badaway Pills for making it easy. They have a good and a bad example, that's the bad example. The good example starts with ad. So it's right up front, it's clear and conspicuous, a consumer would see it. Um, and then the good example also includes a typicality disclosure, just like we were talking about. Um, so typical loss, one pound per week. And you know the FTC has a fair amount of guidance out there on what it thinks is adequate when it comes to disclosing material connections. So it doesn't like ambiguous terms like hashtag spawn or hashtag ambassador, but something really easily understood that consumers are going to see and they're going to know right away. Hey, this is an ad. Um, so ad up front, hashtag advertisement. And you know there there are things in the middle in terms of risk continuum, that I think depend on the context. So the second overall topic I want to turn to is influencer campaigns generally. So when an advertiser incentivizes someone else to talk about their products or services, the company is using an influencer and is legally obligated to ensure that the influencer's posts comply with the law, just as with posts directly made by the brand. So the FTC has settled a number of actions involving deceptive influencers um, over the course of the years. Um, so one of the FTC's recent settlement was with Teami. Um, It's a prime example of its work in the influencer realm. Teamy sells teas and skincare products and used influencers such as Cardi B and Jordan Sparks. Uh, there were a number of good headlines about Cardi B lyrics when the announcement came out. Um, but the FTC basically alleged uh, there were two, real two parts to their, to their enforcement actually against Teami. First, they alleged that Teamy made unsubstantiated claims. So about significant weight loss, um, fighting against cancerous cells when there was no support for that, decreasing migraines. Um, These were some of the claims that were made by their influencers without support. And as we talked about above, um, you can't say things through your influencers that you can't support generally. And the second was on disclosing material connections. So a good example of Um, the two overarching considerations when you're advertising through social media. Uh, I highlight this action because I also think it's helpful in that it provides a whole um, basically best practice checklist of what to do when you're implementing a program to monitor and oversee endorsers. Um, And some of the steps that are required under TEAMI's consent order include providing influencers with a clear statement of disclosure responsibilities, which lays out what they have to say and also obtaining a signed signed acknowledgement of that statement to establishing and implementing a system to monitor representations and disclosures um, and also promptly reviewing each video and social media posting immediately after it's pu- published. Um, now there's an exception for influencers receiving less than $20 a month in compensation. There I think the FTC is just acknowledging that certain companies have a lot of influencers, right? So it might not be that you're able to actively and immediately review every video and social media post for every influencer. And they expect, in the FTC, the standard is never perfection. Um, and I think the FTC would acknowledge that, but it is a standard of reasonableness based on the size of the company, based on the breadth of the influencer campaign. mean, um, I think that is what the, the carve out for certain influencers making less than $20 a month is for. And then also the consent order requires TME to terminate and cease payment to influencers that fail to disclose and comply. Um, So again, provide influencers with a clear statement, establish and implement a system to monitor and oversee, and then terminate folks who don't comply. Kind of the three big steps of an effective campaign under the TME settlement. Um, I'd also just highlight that it wasn't as if Teamy wasn't using any, or teamy's influencers weren't using any disclosures. They actually were, um, but the FTC just didn't find them to be adequate. They didn't think consumers would see them. So for some of them, you'd have to click the more option on Instagram to see the disclosures. And the FTC said, look, you know what? Not everyone's going to do that. They're just scrolling through their Insta feed, and they're going to see the post. They're going to see the claim, and they're not going to click more. They're not going to know that. Cardi B is actually a spokesperson for teaming and being paid um, and therefore it's deceptive. So I think important to highlight there that context matters and you have to really look closer than are we just using disclosures in some respect, but are they likely to be seen and heard by a reasonable consumer? So the third issue with social media advertising I want to touch on is engagement more broadly. So maybe not directly advertising on behalf of the brand or using influencers, but how does my brand engage um, with other people's posts? Um, We get a lot of questions about what happens when a consumer posts about um, a company's products or services, and the claim is something that they didn't greenlight. Um, So they might say to use an example from before that the skincare product reduced their wrinkles in three days um, or something that there's not really a support for. Does the company then have to contact that consumer or somehow correct that post? Um, And the answer is it really depends. There's some out here on this issue, but not a ton. I think it's a growing area and I would expect the FTC to say more on it in the, the future. Um, We know that they're considering it, but they haven't said much on it to date. Uh, The FDA also has a pretty dated draft guidance on this issue. It's from June 2014, um, and it's on social media platforms and correcting independent third-party misinformation is the title of the draft guidance. And there, you know, FDA basically said, if the advertiser doesn't have a role in the creation of the content, so that could be incentivizing the post or encouraging them to provide a review as part of a promotion, then there's really no obligation um, for them to correct. We've also seen um, in an FDA warning letter to Zarbi's in 2014. Zarbies had liked a few comments on its Facebook page and about unsubstantiated claims for Zarbi's um, and those were cited in the FDA's warning letter. Um, so, you know, I, I think that shows kind of where FDA would draw the line at least then. Again, this is six years ago, so a little dated at this point. Um, but there you have the company actually affirmatively taking an action to link to the unsubstantiated claims. There's also an NAD decision on the matter. Um, it's a compliance decision in the Molecule case. And you know, similarly there, they basically said, it depends on how involved you were with the claims. So I think the fact pattern there was Um, They had solicited reviews as part of the reviews. So NAD looked at the fact that the company was actually involved in soliciting the reviews. And as I recall, there were actually some leading questions in the review and said, well, at this point, the company is really involved. And then just one other case I'll highlight in this area is a Lanham Act case involving Quiznos and Subway. Uh, where Quiznos ran a contest asking consumers to create commercials showing why Quiznos subs were better. I think that was a quote. And then entries were submitted on the third-party website. Um, meet, no Meat, um, But that site was actually created by Quiznos for the purposes of the contest. Subway sued. Quiznos raised a defense under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which has been in the news some lately. Um, it shields providers of interactive sites from liability for content published by others. So Quiznos said, look, we didn't create these reviews. We can't be held liable for them. And the court rejected Quiznos's argument um, on the grounds that Quiznos created the domain name. Um, they posted sample videos and they framed the solicitation as asking why Quiznos was better. So it wasn't an objective, tell us what you think about our product, but they said, tell us why we're better. And these were all examples, the court said, of why Quiznos was actually involved in the content creation and thus couldn't couldn't rely on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and therefore could be held viable. So I flag that because it's along the same lines of, you know, it it really depends on how involved the advertiser is in terms of whether there is an obligation to correct content. I would say, so it's a fact-specific inquiry, But if you do decide to do it and your company decides to correct misinformation that's out there, be consistent and thoughtful in how you do it. So you wouldn't want to correct one post and not correct another, right? Uh, Particularly if it's on the same page, if it's on, for example, um, the company's Facebook page and you're removing some posts and not others, you're effectively signaling that you do have a system of oversight, you are seeing the posts that are not true, and you've chosen not to correct the others. So, you know, it's, it's a fact-specific inquiry. Again, I feel like folks hate that answer, but often it is. Um, you just have to really consider your degree of involvement in the posts. All right. Um, so with that, you should be all set to advertise on social media. You know everything. All right. Again, not everything, but hopefully this provides a good sense for the big picture issues. Um, and, you know, there's, there's more info on this and many other important topics on Kelly Drive's Advertising and Privacy Law Resource Center and on our blog, AdWallAccess.com. So I encourage you to visit those and stay tuned for more of these going forward on other important topics.